Well, hello, and today we're going to Moscow. Ha, if only. And then after the break, we'll be talking gangsters. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. So to call it a funny old year would be a classic bit of English understatement. And I'm acutely aware that it's over 12 months since I was last in Moscow. Not least because, you know, good old Facebook, when not busy undermining political systems and so forth, also insists on sending me one year ago, two years ago, five years ago, reminders of photos I posted, which particularly would be a Moscow, because that's generally where I am this time of year, not least because I teach a spring course at uh, Imgimo, the Foreign Minister's University, which I'm now at the moment in the middle of having to do online, which is all very well, but it's really not the same. Anyway, therefore, what I thought I would do today is, well, frankly, thoroughly indulge myself. I wanted to lay out just some of the reasons why and the aspects of Moscow that particularly enthuse me. Not just simply as a way of just simply telling you why I like the place, but ones which I think remind us of some grounds for hope and optimism about not just Moscow, but all of Russia. Because particularly I mean, at present, we've got the, the running story of Navalny, who apparently is, has been now transferred to the IK2 prison colony from his quarantine. We have talk of renewed potential conflict in the Donbass, you know, full-scale conflict. There have been arrests of municipal parliamentarians and so forth. All kinds of reasons to be pretty downbeat about Russia. So... It's a good time to think about the positives. So Moscow. One of the most defining characteristics for me, and remember, this is someone who I mean, actually first travelled to Moscow around the time of the 1980 Moscow Olympics. So I have seen it through a lot of very bad times. But nowadays is the extraordinary vibrancy of the place. While I was a professor at New York University at the Centre for Global Affairs, I took the advantage of, they had this splendid institution called the Global Field Intensives, which basically involve courses beforehand in New York, then uh, seven to 14 days somewhere around the world for an intensive field trip. And twice I was able to run these to Moscow. And it was always an interesting experience because the overwhelming majority of the students who were signed up, these were graduate students, and they were interested in global affairs, but they weren't Russia specialists, generally hadn't been to Russia before. And I would always ask them beforehand, OK, what are your expectations? What kind of a place do you think Moscow is going to be? Write down sentences, odd words, whatever. And almost invariably, they came up with the kind of tropes that we'd expect from 1970s and 1980s spy movies. That this was to be a grey, subdued, dour place of shadowy and dusty corners. Well, then they arrived and they found this phenomenally exciting, genuinely 24-7 city. I mean, quite frankly, it out New York's New York in that respect. And it, this ranged from obviously just the aspects of consumerism, the fact that at any time of day or night you can go and do your shopping at Azbuka, Vukusa. Um, there are going to be the all night flower shops. I, mean, I remember once where I was living in 2014, which is on uh, Volovaya Street and near the Pavletsky railway station. And, and right nearby, there was a 24-hour wedding dress alteration service. And I really found myself thinking, who on earth, again, at four in the morning, suddenly thinks, damn, that's what I meant to have done before today. 
and rushes off to have their wedding dress altered. And you know, one suspects sometimes that all oh, these must be just money laundering fronts or something else, but they can't all be. Now, this is a tremendously fun city, in my opinion. But what's more, it demonstrates both entrepreneurialism, but also a massive level of imagination. Whether we're talking about the almost DNA-like spirals of one of the buildings in the rather cyberpunkish Moscow City financial district, or whether we're talking about all the little pop-up artisanal boutiques and such like. Now, on one level, it's all very well. One can say, well, good for Moscow. But one of the particular reasons why I think that's interesting, apart from the fact it, it shows what, what Russia can be, is that this spreads. Now, look, of course. Moscow is a tremendously privileged city in terms of the critical mass of all kinds of different facilities, in terms of the wealth of the city. And I don't just simply mean the wealth of the individual inhabitants, but also the city itself, which clearly has a very, very favoured position within the federal budgeting system. Though, in fairness, one can say that about most capital cities. I mean, as Britain currently goes through a sort of great debate about, you know, the propriety of trying to transfer all kinds of different functions out of London and the so-called levelling up of particularly the, the North and the Midlands, well, it really becomes clear just how far London is immensely privileged. And it's not as though Washington DC and Paris and Berlin exactly have to, to scrabble for loose change behind the sofa cushions. So we shouldn't think it's, it's too unique. But nonetheless, Moscow is in a particularly privileged position. The 2020 uh, Regional Quality of Life Index that Ria Novosti recently published Unsurprisingly, Moscow gets more than 80,000 as a score out of the possible 85,000, whereas you've got a region like Buryatia over towards Mongolia with under 30,000. But on the other hand, one can see other regions that are also doing pretty well. Tatarstan, Belgorod near the Ukrainian border, Varonezh. And this is in part because of location, in part it's because of investment and so forth. But it speaks to the fact that there is actually, if anything, I would say a slight decentralisation of not just sort of macro scale economic capacity, but also micro scale. I mean, I travel back in the days when I was actually travelling, but you know, whenever I'm in Moscow, I try and go and see other places, even if it's just a, a day trip to Golden Ring or similar towns around it. Do you think of places like, like Vladimir or a particular favourite of mine, Kolomna? And there again, whereas you can see often signs of disrepair, a certain lack of TLC, tender loving care, but you also actually see signs of more than just green shoots, but, but genuine sort of signs of local pride, passion, but also entrepreneurialism. Whether it's um, you know, little shops selling apple-themed goodies in Kolomna. Kolomna is particularly big on apples and anything con connected to it. Um, whether it's just little hipsterish cafes and such like. Now, OK, one can easily dis disparage that. But nonetheless, it says something that they exist. And it's not just because of what we might think of as the Moscow factor, that precisely you are within a, a relatively easy tourist's day trip range. We've also seen all kinds of, of different examples, uh, which I've been hearing about other places. You know, whether we're talking about Krasnodar in the south, which is emerging as something of a sort of foodie destination, to the oil city of Tumen, which really no one would have thought of as, shall I say, a hipster city, but nonetheless is showing these signs of emergence. And in part, it's interesting, it does seem to be that Moscow is the exemplar. It's they look at what happens in Moscow in, yes, this very kind of privileged hothouse environment, and they think, well, why can't we do that? And in some ways, the perverse virtue is poverty that what you may not be able to afford to do in Moscow precisely because of rents and so forth, you might well be able to do in some, excuse me, but crappy little second-ranked town or city out, out in the provinces where things are that much cheaper. And if you can actually find an audience for your art house 
or uh, a market for your kombuchas or whatever it is that you're doing. I don't know, I'm using kind of cliches here. But nonetheless, so be it. And it creates this, this little basis. And people, again, do think it's like Moscow. We can be like Moscow. So Moscow's vibrancy is not just a good thing for Moscow. It actually gives something of an example of what can happen across the country to an extent. What else? Well, one of the classic uh, glories that people cite about Moscow is, of course, its infrastructure and, above all, its metro system. And sure, I mean, it is a quite, quite extraordinary triumph of combining people-moving capacities with architectural glories, with all kinds of other quirky little features. I mean, every time I travel to Moscow, I always have to go to Flushak Revolutsii Metro to go and stroke the border guard's dog's nose for luck and for tradition and everything else. But what's interesting is actually that this is a metro system which is also expanding quite dramatically, constantly. New track, new stations being, being built. We've got this um, very, very impressively modern Moscow Circle light rail line, the MCK, um, which is 54 kilometres, 34 miles um, of orbital railway, connect directly to the metro and so forth. The point I'm getting at is that this is not just something which is of, of historical note. This is constantly expanding and it demonstrates a Russian capacity that they can actually get things done. Now, again, of course, one could say in part it's because of you have a fairly authoritarian regime that is able to concentrate resources and make it worth people's while to get things done. In some ways, precisely the same kind of features that led to the rapid and impressive development of the Sputnik V anti-coronavirus vaccine. But it's more than that. It's more also than the fact that they can use Central Asian guest labourers who are sort of very much sort of pushed hard and such like. It demonstrates that there is a capacity to, to get things done. And com compared with some assessments that more or less say that unless you use terror and violence, these things don't happen in Russia. Well, that's clearly not the case. Yes, it often requires significant um, amounts of money to be thrown at a project. But again, I mean, if one looks at, well, firstly, the parlous infrastructure of so many Western cities, and yes, Washington DC, yes, New York City, I am looking at both of you. But also how expensive and difficult it has been to uplift infrastructural developments, and yes, London, I am looking at Crossrail. You know, there are all these various projects, and my apologies if you do not happen to come from New York or Washington or London, and these things may mean absolutely nothing at all to you. But what I'm getting at is actually the Russians, particularly in Moscow, have demonstrated a capacity to get things done, and get things done in ways that are, well, over budget, but everyone's projects are over budget, but, but actually acceptably so. And when you factor out, frankly, the embezzlement and corruption angle, actually a lot of your projects are really relatively efficient. If we're talking about infrastructure, let me go into a, a third point. Is, shall I say the e-infrastructure? Russia is a very wired country. I mean, this is one of the things that actually has allowed Navalny to emerge and build his so-called power horizontal is precisely that it's not just 20-year-olds who use smartphones and, and go online and so forth. No, actually, Russia is very wired, and Moscow is an exceedingly well-connected city in this respect. And often that's a saving grace at a time of continued, clumsy and often entirely pointless uh, bureaucratization. Actually, allow me to indulge myself further with just a little sideline. It's not so much really about the wired aspect. But again, in Moscow, you, there's all these uh, moi documenti or multifunctional centres, which are really there to bring together a whole variety of different elements of the bureaucracy with which individuals may well have to deal. So if you need to get your passport renewed, if you need to go through the, again, entirely pointless rigmarole of registering a foreign visitor staying with you. I wonder why I'd bring up that particular example. If you have queries about your you know, relationship with the local council or whatever, all of these various different services you can deal with in one place. 
And it's a really fascinating example because on the whole, this actually works quite efficiently. And it's a way in which if you can't actually fix the needless bureaucratism, at least you can find a place and a way to make it as the least irksome possible. And that's really sort of part of, of the genius here, how to get round the fact that you still have a, a system which insists on too many forms, too many stamps, too many things having to be recorded and registered otherwise. But anyway, this very much applies uh, on the sort of electronic online level, and especially in this respect, Moscow is absolutely an exemplar. We have the, the whole My Streets program, which allowed Russians, well, Mus Muscovites, to vote about changes that could take place in their neighbourhoods and so forth. And again, look, let's be blunt about this. Of course, a lot of the decisions that were made were ultimately by executive fiat, by the basis, on the basis of corruption and so forth. But nonetheless, they actually gave a, a real sense of engagement that was not entirely pointless. More to the point, as part of a sort of wider smart city initiative, you've now got this exceedingly useful um, apps provided by Moscow City Council, which allow you to do everything from check when your water, hot water supply is meant to come off. You know, so everyone gets two weeks in, at some point in the summer when in their neighbourhood the central hot water systems are all turned off as, as they fix the pipes and, and generally maintain them. Well, you can find out exactly when. You can report potholes or broken streetlights. You can do all kinds of things all through one app. This, I mean, this, and this is actually a, a presaging of, of a much wider process that, in fact, um, very much is associated with the current Prime Minister, Mishustin, who, when he was head of the tax service, did a great deal of digitization of the process that made it much more efficient and, frankly, a much less inconvenient process for ordinary Russians. Well, this is something that we're going to see rolled out more and more across the country generally, and Moscow's absolutely the, the, the testbed and, once again, the example for this. Now, look, there is a definite sort of cyberpunkish dimension to this. Incidentally, I mean, this is one of my, one of my long-term projects I really would like to write is a book about why Russia is the real cyberpunk country for all kinds of reasons, but I'll, I'll, talk, I'll talk about that in a, in, a, in a future podcast. And if there's any publishers out there that want to talk to me about it, you know where I am. So anyway, the, part of this sort of cyberpunk element is clearly there is a constant struggle, a constant battle for how far these methods, methods are liberation or authoritarian in their direction. I mean, let's be honest, you've got the state which is very much doubling down on things like facial recognition systems and linked to cameras all around the city, which we have seen being used to target believed or real opposition supporters, as well as genuine bad guys, terrorists and, and the like. And so, you know, there, there, there is a lot of extent to which this could lead to a much, much more efficient techno-authoritarianism. But at the same time, this is also being used by people who find all kinds of ways to, to actually subvert the control of the state. Whether it's precisely that people are giving donations to Navalny's team or other opposition groups and NGOs through Bitcoin, through hard-to-trace electronic wallet systems, whether it's people using VPNs, which allow you to more or less kind of act or pretend as if you're actually accessing the internet somewhere else, in another country even, to bypass controls. I mean, we saw the state try to block entirely the social media um, telegram network, and ultimately failing because, frankly, people found their ways around it. So actually, I think a, you know, a wired population knows well how to actually get around the state's controls. So this, this, this is very much a, a struggle in process, but one which in the meantime actually is making the city that much more efficient. I mean, let me be honest, facial recognition systems to allow you just to walk into the metro and automatically ha have your account debited as a result, I mean, come on. That sounds pretty cool to me. From advanced technology to the past. History. History is very, very present and real in Moscow. 
and it's 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 very active as well. I mean, everything from the fad for repurposing and restoring old buildings, whether we're talking about the central telegraph office right in the middle of Moscow, or the these various kind of again rather arty and hipster venues like the sort of Vinzavod and so forth, a great advance from the 1990s and the days of the former mayor of Moscow, Lushkov, which saw so much history being bulldozed to create yet another gorgeously tacky, and I say gorgeous, I'm using very much sarcastically, um, glitzy shopping mall or the like. Um, the, the Lushkov era was in many ways a bad era for Moscow, and Sabyanin, whatever else you may say, and frankly, as more and more of the pavements have to get torn up every year, you know, there are downsides. But, you know, actually, we have seen under Sabianin, um, I would suggest, a much more um, engaged and, for want of a better word, sensitive ex exploration, shall we say, of Moscow's history as something that can be made living. And you can contrast that with you know, the fact that uh, it's not unusual to look into a schoolyard and see there, along with the, the maybe the swings or the climbing frame, an old World War II vintage anti-tank gun. Now look, for me, I think that's great, but I am you know, a bit of a sad militarist at heart, so that, that's fine. But again, I think it says something about the reality of history, the currentness, shall we say, of history in Moscow. We have a tendency, after all, to focus on the negative aspects which are primarily connected with how the regime seeks to use and abuse and curate history for its own advantages, whether it's in terms of rehabilitating Stalin as a sort of a necessary figure in the modernization and defense of, of the, the homeland, or whether it's just generally cherry picking all the bits to try and create a sense that history tells Russians how they should be, and history tends to tell Russians that the world is a dangerous place and they have to support a tough ruthless, authoritarian, central leader, or else bad things will happen. Well, okay, I'm certainly not going to defend that. I, I have I've spoken about that in the past, and it's a fairly central theme of my book, a Short History of Russia. There you go, a little obligatory plug there. But the point is this, you can only mobilise something that is relevant to people, that means something to people. Now, let's be honest, and here I will leap onto a soapbox for a moment. I mean, in the West, we have a rather depressing fad at the moment for taking uncomfortable history and cancelling it. The slave-owning father of democracy. The philanthropist whose money was largely built on imperial ventures. All of these, for me, absolutely fascinating conundrums and paradoxes. Instead of being something that, that we grapple with and discuss and contemplate, there are things that we try and just brush out of sight or, if need be, topple the relevant statue into a convenient local body of water. Not so in Russia and certainly not so in Moscow. This is still very present and if it's present, then it's contestable. We still have debate and discussion, and we saw this particularly fascinatingly with the whole recent issue of the statue of secret police chief founder, rather, Felix Zhezhinsky, and this debate about whether or not his statue should be restored to its location in front of the Lubyanka, the, again, the headquarters of the Soviet political police and then now the modern FSB, the Federal Security Service. Now, that led to a city-wide debate which allowed Muscovites to vote whether or not that square will be occupied by Felix Zhezhinsky, who, let's be honest, was uh, a bloody-handed zealot, or Alexander Nevsky, who is basically the, the default historical hero that can be trotted out at any point you want someone who is relatively uncontroversial. Of course, that sets aside the fact that Actually, Nevsky made all kinds of deals with the Mongols when they were conquerors and really started the process of 
building Moscow as the, the new capital of, of the Russias. But that's a whole separate issue. But the point is, again, it was in Moscow that this debate was had. It was in Moscow that they decided to actually have this vote. And Nevsky was outpolling Zhezhinsky, but not by a huge margin, but, but by a, a clear one, when Sabyanin, mayor of Moscow, decided actually to cancel the vote and said that certainly for the moment the, the square would remain as it is, with, incidentally, a monument to the victims of the Gulag. Now, there's all kinds of contested uh, discussions about quite why this was. To some, it was always meant to be just a, a distraction. Some sound and some fury, particularly to take attention away from Navalny, and Subyanin was then kind of allowed to step in and be the moderating force. I think that is actually not quite right. I think this is underplaying the extent to which Subyanin himself was uncomfortable with the situation. And in fact, also use this as an opportunity to say, come on, we need to actually stop this. But whatever the reason is, um, Sabyanin could now say, no, this was getting too divisive. The statue should be there to unify, not divide, blah, blah, blah. And here we have it again. So, so Moscow history is important enough that you actually have a citywide referendum. A citywide referendum about whether a very, very controversial statue to an even more controversial figure should be restored or not, or should there be someone else, and now we have, certainly for the moment, nothing. History is very real in Moscow, and that for me, well, obviously, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a historian, so of course I, I'm going to like that. But I think it says something about, again, the potentiality for Russia to still redeem itself from its past. The point is, once a country starts to try to erase its history, it erases parts of its soul, and it's very difficult to recover that history that you have chosen to discard. While it's there, while it's still raw and ugly and potentially painful, it can also actually be worked through. And Moscow is very much a city in which the history is raw, ugly and painful. And for me, that's all the better for Moscow. And while we're talking about raw, ugly and painful topics, here's the last one I want to throw in. The issue of race, which is clearly, a, again, a very problematic one in Russia. And in Moscow, yes, on the one hand, you have all this extraordinary um, recovery of Russian imperial architecture and with it the... the, the assumptions about the attitudes and so forth that go with it. So you have the churches and monasteries once again. You have the, the high fortress of the Kremlin. You have the fact that you know, St. Basil's Cathedral on Red Square was built precisely to celebrate and commemorate victory over the Khanate of Kazan and, and the creation of what is now Tatarstan as, as a Russian imperial territory. But at the same time, there is the Moscow Cathedral Mosque, a huge um, construction, uh, which is kind of basically thoroughly rebuilt, inaugurated in 2015, can take 10,000 worshippers. You have all kinds of other weird and wonderful locations. For me, I mean, absolutely fascinating. The Hotel Sevastopol in the southern um, neighbourhood of uh, Zuzino, I think. Anyway, it is really like a vertical Afghan bazaar. You go there and, and it's, it's, it's a Soviet-era hotel that has basically been taken over largely by a whole array of stores and stores and stores on, on multiple floors. Everything that you might want from Afghanistan and, and generally the region. So, you know, ranging from sort of clothing and, and cloth to lapis lazuli, jewellery to whatever else. And basically most of the people there come from Afghanistan or the region. I use that as an example because it's, just, it's, a, it's always a particularly surreal one and fascinating one. Um, but it actually emphasises the point to which there are all kinds of, of, of pockets of different cultures around Moscow. And on the whole, these are not ones that are being pressurised or, or stamped out. Now, look, race is still very much a, a ten, tense issue in, in Russia as a whole. 
Um, you'll still see um, leaflets up offering flatlets and so forth, which will include the little mention of Russians only. Or, even more interestingly, you will find adverts in the paper for, for example, cleaning services that reassure you that all their cleaning staff are Slav. I mean, things that you really be very hard to imagine happening in, in, in the West. Though, again, a cynic would suggest probably they exist, but they're just coded in different ways. But anyway, I digress. So you have that. You still have instances um, of, of violence. I mean, particularly the... There was a big, in 2013, in Biryulyeva um, neighborhood, there was a sort of whole kind of big violent racial confrontation between Slavs and, and North Caucasians. You still have dinosaurian figures like the uh, parliamentarian uh, Tamara Plitnova, who in the time of the 2018 World Cup, when obviously football fans from all around the world were coming to Russia, warned women not to be sleeping with foreigners because, after all, we don't want to have more mixed-race babies, do we? Oh, dear. Yeah, I mean, so, so, of course, there is still a lot of that. But actually, Moscow is in many ways at the forefront of dealing with that. Particularly interesting, again, this is from a 2018 poll that was carried out by Levada, the, the, the best and most independent of all the polling agencies that are still surviving in, in Russia that found, was looking at uh, attitudes towards non-Russians and actually found that the people in Moscow were more positive toward Jews than towards the English, which, you know, I'm going to try and not take personally. And, you know, again, given just how strong historically this notion of various sort of Jewish conspiracy theories have been in not just um, shaping attitudes, but actually often leading to open violence and pogroms. Well, it's interesting, whereas nationwide, 56% of Russians, or 56% of respondents, said that they did not believe in these kind of Jewish conspiracy theories at all, but 70% of Muscovites. So, you know, although there are still particularly negative attitudes, especially towards Roma and Chechens, but generally speaking, again, even in Moscow, Precisely because it is this really heavily multi-ethnic city. And it's not just about gangsters from the North Caucasus and guest workers from Central Asia. You, know, you do see all sorts, all types, and frankly all colours um, on, on its streets. Here too, although it's a painful process, of course it's going to be a painful process, but although it is painful, I think you're also seeing Russians particularly working through a lot of historical prejudices that are there. So these are some reasons, again, why, in case you haven't gathered, I'm quite an aficionado of Moscow. But also, these are aspects of Moscow that I think we need to bear in mind to remember that there is still all kinds of reason to feel optimistic about Russia, however pessimistic we might feel about the current situation. That seems to be a suitable note for a break. Then let's t get back and talk about gangsters. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So, on the 12th of March, the prosecutor's office formally approved the indictment against three men who had been accused of the 2009 murder of one of the last and most famous or infamous of the so-called Vorivazakonya, thieves within the code, the old criminal aristocracy, shall we say, of, of the Russian underworld. It was Vyacheslav Ivankov, who was known as Yaponchik, Little Jap. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it says something about what's been happening within the Russian underworld, but also what might be going on here and now. Plus, anyway, it's about gangsters, and this is my thing. So, again, continuing the theme of indulgence from this particular episode of the podcast, bear with me. So, what happened is, according to the prosecutors, is that uh, three men who, have been, who actually were arrested last year had been accused of the killing 
Japonczyk was coming out of a restaurant he was known to frequent, Taitaiski Slon, the Thai elephant, when the three men who'd been lying in wait in a, a gazelle a little sort of minivan, one of whom was armed with an ex-army SVD Dragunov sniper rifle, put a bullet into his midsection from about 40 metres away and gave him a, a, a fatal injury. Now, the reason this is worthwhile to talking about is we have to think about who Japonchik was. As I say, Japonchik was very much the old school. And in some ways, when he died, that to me is a suitable point to say that's when the old institution, the Vori Vazakonye, died too. Because there are still people who call themselves Vori. But the idea of a, a real... Uh, code and one that above all is recognized across the criminal subculture such that uh, a vor has an authority that is not just simply over his own gang and his own guys but actually across the subculture as a whole that basically has died and as i said i think japonchik's killing was the, was the final act um, in in that rather slow death he had been i mean he was a career criminal really from from childhood He'd been involved in the gang of the so-called Great Mongol, who was a, a precursor to the organized crime gangs of Moscow. Mongol was particularly impressive and interesting because he realized, this was in the time of the, the late Soviet Union, the corruption of the Soviet Union, when you have the emergence of these phenomenally rich black market entrepreneurs who clearly could not turn to the authorities for protection and could not put their money in state banks and such like. So there were these people who were very, shall we say, rich in monetary terms, poor in security. And the Mongol turned to, first of all, um, obviously extorting from them, but above all, he had to do that on the basis of showing that he meant business. So what his gang would do is they would kidnap some of these people, and in some cases, they would take them out into the woods, put them in a wooden coffin, and start sawing their way through that wooden coffin until the individual relented and told them where he had um, stashed his cash. Having made enough of a reputation as being people who definitely were men of their word, at least in the, in the worst sense of it, Mongol then moved into using that, monetizing that reputation precisely for extortion. So he didn't actually have to threaten to sort well, try and saw people in, in half, he could basically expect people to pay him off. So Japonchik was part of this, and very much he was on the rather violent enforcer side of things. But nonetheless, I mean, he was a hard, hard man, absolutely. He stuck to the code of, of the Vorovskoy Mir. He very much acquired that kind of broad reputation as being, you know, one of, of the real sort of aristocrats of, of the underworld. He went to prison, he was in, in, imprisoned in the 1980s, and he came out basically as the Soviet Union was collapsing. And you know the story of the astronaut who went into orbit as a citizen of the Soviet Union and came down as a citizen of the Russian Federation? Well, I mean, in some ways, that's what happened to Japonchik. He went into prison at a time when the underworld was still sort of on the rise, I would say. And he came out at a point when the underworld was, on the one hand, tremendously powerful. In the 1990s, after all, were their, their, their playground years. But also one in which actually power had shifted. Power had shifted away from the old Vori to a new generation of so-called autoriceti, the authorities, who were basically much more sophisticated criminal businessmen who had no qualms at all about using violence when it suited them. But above all, they were interested in at least a veneer of respectability. These were not people who were going to cover themselves with tattoos. And these are also people who were not going to hobble themselves with an archaic code of the Vor, when, frankly, they just wanted to make money and get away with it. And for them, Japonchik was a dangerous anachronism. Respected enough that his voice still counted, powerful enough that he could still make trouble, yet, to be blunt, not smart enough to realize that the old ways had gone and the old laws of the Vorovskoy Mir, the thieves' world, no longer applied. So they came on, I think it's frankly a stroke of brilliance, is they struck upon the idea of sending him to America. 
Now, they sold this to him as a great honour, that in some ways he was going to be their conqueror and ambassador to the underworld of the United States, particularly Brighton Beach, New York, which actually was obviously not just an area of uh, large numbers of Soviet and Russian um, expats and emigres, also an area with its own rather primordial organised crime phenomenon. Well, he was going to go and take over Brighton Beach and use that as the bridgehead, really to establish the presence of Russian organised crime in the United States. They maybe even believed that, but to be perfectly honest, from their point of view, the main thing is this got Japonchik out of their hair and exiled him in a way that he would be happy to be exiled. So he went there, again, because he was that that's a rather thuggish variety of gangster, although he did manage to very quickly and very violently assert his grip on the Brighton Beach Organizatia. He was not the sort of person who stays in the shadows. He very much got involved in criminal activities, and therefore, no surprise, quite quickly the FBI catch him and put him in prison. And when he's let out of prison in the United States, clearly he is sent back to Russia. And he still hasn't really understood the way that the world has changed. He still believes that being a vor gives you, first of all, a degree of um, protection from the continuing sort of violent turf wars. But also that a vor is, as traditionally was in the underworld, essentially also an underworld judge, an underworld arbitrator of disputes. And he made the mistake of getting involved in a conflict between two Georgian origin gangsters, Tariel Onyani, known as Taro, and Died Hassan, Usoyan, or Grandfather Hassan. And he was basically siding with Usoyan, which was a mistake, because Tariel Onyani is a I say is because he is still around, even though he is currently in prison in Spain. But, I mean, he is probably one of the most violent and above all destabilizing figures that we've seen in the Russian underworld for a long time. He really doesn't care about the rules. He really doesn't care about code. He really doesn't care about basic decency or anything. And he clearly decided that uh, Japonchik had to go. Now, interestingly enough, it's actually not his own guys who took Japonchik out. The three individuals, the three suspects, uh, who, who have actually were arrested, as I said, last year, all seem to have been hired by a man by the name of Ilya Simonia, whose underground, underworld nickname was Macho. But the interesting thing is this, Simonia actually was one of Onyani's closest allies. And although he had a very definite and long-term grudge with Japonchik, because Japonchik had uh, caused for him to basically lose his uh, status as a vor of Zakonia. Um, so you know, he obviously had all kinds of reasons. But it's unlikely that Simonia would have actually gone after Japonchik purely on his own initiative. Not least because, I mean, he could have done it sooner. Instead, probably he was doing so as a proxy for Onyani. Or at the very least, had been given some kind of indication that Onyani would, would basically back him up. Because the point is, part of the old tradition of the Vori is exactly that a Vorova Zakonia is essentially to be considered to be untouchable, especially if they're involved in some attempt to try and uh, resolve and arbitrate between disputes. So actually, by going after Yaponchik, Macho Simonia could well have been putting himself into harm's way. The fact that he has managed to he, he managed to survive so long implies that he had some degree of additional protection. I mean, he's now regarded as likely to be um, hiding in Abkhazia, this little sort of pseudo state in Georgia under Russian protection, in which, incidentally, Tarielonyani has quite a bit of influence and so forth. So probably he was acting as, as a proxy for for Taro. Um, the criminals themselves, I mean, they were clearly sort of fa fairly competent, um, but nonetheless, you know, they, they were not really significant in, in their own right. So, as I said, this is in many ways, it marked, marked the final end of the, the true Vori. But the question is, OK, why is this case emerging now? Is it just simply that this is the time it's taken for the wheels of the prosecutorial process to grind? Well, maybe, but bear in mind, I mean, the three guys were arrested last year. 
but most of the details had been swirling around for years. Instead, again, I think it says something about the Russian state's attempt to, in effect, manage the Russian underworld. We've got to realise that this is not, and I really need to stress this, this is not a mafia state in the sense of this is not a state in which either the gangsters control the state. I mean, unless you redefine mafia to also include corrupt people, but that certainly from the point of view of a sort of criminological perspective is meaningless. But nor does the state actually control organised crime. What the state does is in some ways sets the parameters for acceptable activities. It says, you know, if you do this, then we will regard you as an enemy and we will go after you. But as long as you stay within your usual sort of acceptable levels of gangsterism, well, sure, the police will try and catch you and so forth, but basically we will not consider you to be an enemy of the state. So it sets the parameters of, of, of acceptable gangsterism. But what it also does is it tries to manage it above all to resist the thing that it worries about the most, which is the explosion of new rounds of turf wars. The sorts of things that ripped the country in the 1990s and very much give the, give the impression that the state is not in charge. So we've seen all kinds of efforts to actually maintain some kind of balance of terror, shall we say, within the underworld. Because the trouble is, what happens is, over time, the, the balance of power, the, the pecking orders between the gangs actually come under pressure. Some gangs become more, more powerful because they're exposed to new economic opportunities or because um, a smarter or more effective leader arises. Other gangs decay slightly. Regions which once upon a time were regarded as backwaters where there weren't great opportunities. And for example, one, one can mention the, the Belarus border, which is now sort of useful for all kinds of smuggling of sanctioned goods. Or one can look at the border with the um, contested Donbass region where, again, there's all kinds of new opportunities for smuggling. Well, the gangs there clearly benefit. And under normal circumstances, what happens is, after a certain point, when the official balance of power, shall we say, or the old balance of power, begins to become increasingly antiquated, then the, the new young hotbloods will challenge it, and a new balance of power, a new pecking order, new turf boundaries will emerge from often violent contestation. That's not what the state wants to see, and therefore the state is very much trying to freeze the current status quo as far as possible. Now, the interesting thing is about Onyani. I mean, he was being held, and again, it says something about just how dangerous he was. You know, he had been arrested, and he'd ended up in Black Dolphin, which is... Mm, arguably the most notorious and top security prison in all of Russia. I mean, it is an extraordinary facility for the most extraordinarily unpleasant individuals, the, the, the terrorists, the, literally the cannibals, as well as the mass murderers. This is the kind of place where when inmates are being moved around within the prison, not only are they moved around by a sort of team of, of multiple guards, but they are kept in a constant stress position, bent over, hands behind their backs. Really very, very silence of the lambsy. Um, and it says something that Anyani was sent there. But he was released in 2019 and he was extradited straight to Spain. because The Russian state has actually removed his Russian citizenship. And last year in Spain, he was uh, convicted and sent to prison for, on, on a four-year sentence. So this is the interesting thing. From the state's point of view, Onyani is now out of the picture and best of all, out of the country. And I have a sense that they're using this as an opportunity to basically break Onyani's wider network down a bit, to try and break it down to size. Again, not going to try and just destroy it because that would create a vacuum and vacuums are very, very dangerous things because obviously crime, much like nature, abhors vacuums and rushes to fill them. But instead, there is a sense that Anyani, who was too much of a rules breaker, too much of, a, frankly, a, a, a violent, a so-called bispredelchik, sort of you know, an agent of chaos, shall we say. Well, while he's out of the way, I think they decided to basically break it down. And in the process, empower, I think, the Russian, the Slavic gangs more so that they're in a better position to take on the Chechens and the Georgians, who are the sort of the two main challengers, and to a lesser extent, the Azeri gangs, which particularly in, in, in Moscow are, are significant.
So again, this is the thing about this current court case. On one level, I have no reason to believe it is anything other than accurate in its assessment of three particular individuals who actually carried out the killing. It's also entirely plausible, in my opinion, that they were indeed hired to do so by Marco Simonia. However, I think behind that, as I say, I think are much, much wider issues about the, the political balance of power, shall we say, within the Russian underworld. And more interestingly of all, about the extent to which the Russian state is in some ways an active player in that underworld, not carrying out the crimes and so forth, certainly not running the gangs, but in trying to ensure that no gangs become too powerful, no gangs become too destabilizing, and above all, that especially at the moment, in the run-up to parliamentary elections in September and then presidential elections, that the kind of overt explosions of violence which bring to in question the state's capacity to protect its citizens and control the streets, that those kind of explosions of violence are kept off the agenda for as long as possible. The thing is that you can only hold on to the status quo for so long. The parallel I've used in the past is Europe in the prelude to the First World War, where you had an increasingly anachronistic balance of power, where you had decaying empires, the Tsarist Empire, and even more dramatically so, Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman. And you had a rising power, Germany. And when it came down to it, although attempts were made to basically freeze, to fossilise the balance of power, that could not last When it comes down to it, empires are going to fall. When it comes down to it, rising powers are going to look for their place in the sun. All you can do, at best, is to forestall the moment when that realignment happens. And maybe, if you're lucky, get to actually manage that realignment process. We'll have to see if they're successful at that. On that note, having indulged my passions for both Moscow and mayhem, I think that time's to bring this to an end. Thank you very much for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мной.